Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate kicks off the 15th season of Let It Roll with guest Bill Kopp to discuss his book, Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records and the Rise of a New Wave. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Bill Kopp, author of Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records and the Rise of New Wave. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Cool. And so tell us a little bit about 415 Records, because from the perspective of 2022, a lot of people are going going to go, what, who, why? <laughs> and so tell us why we care about 415 Records 40 years later. Sure. That's that's a that's a fair question. Uh, the the idea of uh, independent record labels uh, employing what uh, these days or for some time now has been known as sort of uh, guerrilla marketing and relationship marketing type approaches. Um, it, that's fairly commonplace now. In the mid and late 70s, it was unheard of. And uh, 415 Records was one of the first punk slash new wave slash indie record labels. And uh, while they didn't have a lot of what we would uh, consider uh, mainstream commercial success. They uh, did. They they were an, an important first step in the uh, direction of those kind of indie labels. And uh, for the the things they did right and the things that went wrong for them uh, can serve as uh, object lessons and uh, you know a, a useful uh, template to follow going forward. Absolutely. And tell us about this distinction between punk and new wave, because, again, with the you know 40 years in the past, those categories have kind of been telescoped together and people don't really understand the visceral resistance to punk on the part of the record labels and the radio stations in the U.S. Tell us what were the dividing lines there and what's the difference between punk and new wave? To, to be fair, and from a lot of perspectives, the difference is um, both punk and new wave are marketing terms. Um, it's obviously, uh, punk has a, a, a cachet of uh, sincerity and a, a, a real quality about it, whereas new wave sometimes does, sometimes doesn't. Uh, the distinction between them is pretty much in, in the, uh, the ears of the listener, I think. Um, there, there are definitely some, you know, you can listen to certain things and go, oh, that's punk. That isn't. Uh, I remember uh, the first time I heard uh, the, the Sex Pistols, never mind the Bullocks. I thought, wow, this is really, really, really edgy stuff. And it was and remains. But listening to it now, decades on, it's not nearly as far from classic rock as it seemed at the time. Um, all that said, uh, the what was going on in in the, the late 70s and into the 80s, to, to some degree, was a, a sort of non-commercial or certainly less commercially focused kind of uh, proto-alternative music, you might say. And both uh, punk and new wave kind of fit into that broader category. Excellent. And now tell us a little bit about our main character in the story, the head of 415 Records. He, was, he had partners, but there's one guy who was kind of the heart and soul of 415 Records. And he went on to a pretty successful or I don't, wildly successful career with the major labels, uh, Warner Brothers and Sire Records, in the later 80s and 90s. Tell us about Howie Klein. Well, Howie Klein had uh, gotten his start in the quote-unquote music business, if you will, as uh, a student council activities coordinator at Stony Brook University in uh, Long Island. 
and while he was there in the late 60s, he was booking really, really edgy bands for school dances, bands like uh, an unsigned band called The Doors. He he signed them, he booked them for a gig, and between the time of the booking and the time of the uh, the actual gig, they got a record deal. And uh, so by the time they played Stony Brook, they were commanding much larger sums, but they still played the gig for 400 bucks for Howie. Um, Anyway, that was that was his background for for music. Uh, he's a non-musician, was then and remains a non-musician today. Uh, but he always had a passion and an interest for things that lay uh, just uh, just outside or sometimes well outside the mainstream. Another band that he booked uh, was the Fugs, who were you know a bunch of beat poets, really, um, kind of a less musical version of Frank Zappa and the Mothers, you might say. So he was doing those sort of really out there kind of things uh, after sort of taking an odyssey to the east to sort of find himself. He ended up in San Francisco where uh, he fully embraced a lot of the independent uh, nascent kind of punk stuff that was going on. Uh, He considers the time he saw the Ramones live on stage. Uh, early in their career, a kind of a turning point in his own life. And that really turned him on to the kind of things that he found were also happening in San Francisco. So he was uh, working as a DJ, late night DJ, doing some, uh, you know, freeform radio when such a thing existed. And uh, the, you know, that was his way of kind of uh, nurturing the scene that was going on in the Bay Area, and one thing led to another, led to another, and uh, that's essentially how uh, 415 Records would, would come about as a result of uh, his interest and passion for promoting, nurturing, and encouraging the uh, punk and new wave bands of the Bay Area. And tell us a little bit about the Bay Area in the late 70s, vis-a-vis, say, Los Angeles and New York. I mean, the Bay Area now is seen as, of course, the home of Silicon Valley and this incredibly major global city. But at the time, it was kind of on the second tier. You know, it was. And uh, what's interesting is uh, in a, a common thread that came up in my interviews for the book, and I did, uh, I think, 96 interviews with the artists and the label people and so on and so forth, um, was just how provincial uh, the San Francisco music scene was. And that's not really meant in a negative sense. Uh, unless, in those days, unless you were subscribing to something like New York Rocker or Trouser Press or something like that, something you really didn't have much of a sense of what was going on in other major cities. Um, you know, there some, you know, there were some bands that were touring and obviously people knew each other from, from one city to another, but the, the music scenes of that period existed almost not to overstate it, but almost independent from one another. So the LA scene was very, very different. It was, it was much more competitive. Uh, the pay to play thing hadn't really started for, uh, performing artists, but, um, LA seemed And let me explain more, the pay to play yeah. term for our listeners. Oh, that sure. that was a phenomenon that came on really heavily in the glam rock era in the in LA in the eighties where bands would literally basically have to hire the club. So a club like the Whiskey at Go Go, which legendarily, you know, uh provided a, a you know regular gig for bands like The Doors and The Birds and Love back in the day. Um by the eighties, bands like Poison, etc., would frequently have to pay to rent the club, which totally changes the dynamic when bands have to have financial backing to even get in front of an audience. So go ahead. No, perfect description. And, and thank you for that. I, I shouldn't assume that everybody knows about that, the horrible phenomenon of beta play. Uh, but, um, oh gosh, and now I kind of lost my plot. Where were Now we? you're back um, in San Francisco oh, in the oh, late seventies, yeah. Sex right. Pistols come so, to town, set up a right. bomb. Right, right. I, absolutely. The, uh, the, the the final Sex Pistols show at Winterland uh, was uh, a turning point for a lot of bands uh, in the Bay Area, 
many of whom were in the audience. And uh, there's kind of a running joke that uh, basically there were, there were two kinds of musicians in the Bay Area in those days. There were the people who were backstage uh, after the, uh, the Pistol Show, and there were people who said they were backstage. So, um, but it did, it did make a, a big impression on, on those bands and whether they went off and made music that had anything stylistically to do with what the Pistols were doing or not was less the point. The point was, hey, this sort of DIY kind of thing is something that we can do. Another theme that came up a lot in my interviews was uh, the, the, the camaraderie and the, uh, the sort of lack of that whole competitive vibe. Um, those, those two things really uh, formed a, a great deal of the character that was happening in uh, the, we say the Bay Area, but uh, a lot of what was really going on in punk and new wave was concentrated in a really, really tight geographical uh, spot, uh, the North Beach neighborhood where the half dozen or so clubs were. And so everybody knew each other too. And tell us about those clubs in particular, and I've always struggled with the pronunciation of this, the Ma Buhe Gardens. Is that close? That's pretty close. Uh, uh, Mabuhe, Mabuhai. Uh, I think there's a reason that uh, it became known as the Fab Mab is because it was a whole lot easier to agree on how to pronounce that. But yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the Mab was uh, a Filipino restaurant and uh, the owner, Ness Aquino, made uh, the decision along with um, the, the one of, some of the other people that he was uh, involved with that uh, the thing to do was when the uh, restaurant closed at night would be to reopen it as a music venue and because the building was just sitting there idle. And so uh, with uh, Dirk Dirksen as MC, the, uh, the MAB became kind of ground zero for a lot of the new music that was happening in that area. And let's introduce the other partners uh, with Howie Klein in launching 415 Records. There's Chris Nab. Who, what, where, why? How did he get involved and what did he bring to the table? Chris Knab had been, um, at the time, was uh, the owner and guy behind the counter at Aquarius Records in the Castro District. And when Howie Klein moved to, to town, uh, he obviously took an interest in when he started taking interest in music uh he found himself hanging out at um at aquarius quite a bit and so uh, at at some point uh chris was asked um by a, a programmer at one of the uh, radio stations in town one of the college stations you know hey you know there's this this bubbling under kind of uh, punk and new wave stuff that's going on we don't really know anything about it. You as a record store guy, uh, you do. I mean, you're you're ordering these records and you're selling them to uh, your clientele. Why don't you come on late at night and do a radio show? And he was more or less like, well, oh, okay, I don't have any particular uh, experience in that area, but I'll give it a shot. And after doing it for a very, very short time, he realized two things. One, there, there was... Uh, kind of a need or a market for this kind of uh, music to be played. And two, he didn't feel that he had quite the gravitas to do it himself. And so he said, why don't I bring, why don't I invite uh, somebody on as a, a co-host, uh, uh, my, my friend and uh, frequent customer, Howie Klein. And so that's how the two of them got involved in doing these radio shows together. Uh, at some point, when they started doing that, all these local bands started sending in tapes. And when I say tapes, we're talking about cassette tapes um, made oftentimes by, with one of the old style boom boxes that had a condenser microphone. You kind of put it in the middle of the room in your practice space and you played, you know, straight to two track. No, no production, no mixing, no, no anything. Just, you know, and then, you, know, you record those, that your three minute song and then you run over to the radio station and say, hey, Howie and Chris, would you play this? And to their credit, they did. Uh, they started getting, you know, more and more and more and more of these tapes from all these local bands. And at one point, one day they were, as the story goes, and memories differ on the, the, the specifics of this, but on one day they were uh, on their way to do one of the radio shows and uh, a friend of theirs, a, a big record collector, uh, named Butch Bridges 
said, um, you know, you guys, you're getting so many of these tapes from these unsigned bands. Why don't you start a record label? And so they did. And Butch was essentially a silent partner. He, he put up uh, either a third of the money or, according to some accounts, all of the money, um, and, which we're, we're talking in triple digits here. We're really not talking about a lot of money. Um, <laughs> and they, they, they started the label. The first record that they released was a 45 by uh, a, definitely a punk band called The Nuns. And uh, the, the nuns, it, it, with the benefit of, of, of a historical perspective, we people now can look back and, and recognize, you know, one of their members was Alejandro Escovedo, who has gone on to a, a critically acclaimed career. Absolutely. And let's hear that song. This is the nuns' Suicide Child. Suicide Child. And that was the Nuns' debut single, the debut single from 415 Records, Suicide Child. And Alejandro Escovito goes on to form a band called Rank and File with the Kinman Brothers, who are coming out of another San Francisco punk band called The Dills. And this is kind of off track from your book, but I just have to ask, what's your theory as to why, why did 415 Records not end up signing more of these punk bands like The Avengers and The Dills in particular? Some of that did come up in my interviews. Um, I, I think to a really, really, really large extent, the um, the, the roster of 415 reflected the collected tastes of Howie, Chris, and uh, a, another very important character, um, house producer David Kahn. They, uh, there were very little in the way of sort of written contracts or written job descriptions or anything like that where 415 was involved, but they did have an unwritten rule that uh, to sign a band, uh, the three of them had to agree. So what it meant is that to a large extent, uh, the, the, if, you know, if you were on 415, it was because these three individuals really, really liked your music. Um, the, the flip side is if, you know, if, if one of them didn't, uh, you probably weren't on 415. And the others of them just kind of had their own uh, their own goals. I know in, in uh, my understanding is that in the case of the Avengers uh, fronted by the, the great Penelope Houston, they um, I think they may have seen 415 as a bit too, <laughs> believe it or not, a bit too commercial for uh, what they were seeking to do. Uh, as far as why the deals didn't, you know, I, I truly don't know that that just never really came up. Hmm. Interesting question. It's hard to say the perspective of time and the fact that Rank and File was one of the pioneers of cowpunk, which didn't really make a commercial splash, but I think has had more of a historical splash. I think maybe it's hard for me to say, does that make the deals seem more important than they were at the time? I think you'd have to have been on the ground in San Francisco in those days. Uh, the, their singles are awfully good, though. But tell us more about David Kahn, because he's a very important third wheel. And a key part, like one, one quote that really jumped out at me in the book was when Howie is talking to the major labels about cutting a deal for 415. Um, one thing they really admired was his ability to record an album for, say, $500 to $5,000 and turn around and make $50,000 selling it. David Kahn is absolutely key to that. And frequently, Howie didn't even pay him. How did, how did this work? How did 415's records get produced? Uh, in some cases, uh, going back, we'll take the... the uh, the nuns as an example uh the the band financed their own recording and brought the finished recording to howie and just said can you release this that's the way uh a lot of the early 415 stuff was done i mean they you know the the label was simply releasing releasing things that were uh, already finished 
which is um, you know wasn't that common then. Now it's very very common, especially on indie labels. Um, you know the, the band retains ownership of their master tapes and all those kind of things, and they just work out kind of what you, we might call a licensing deal. So that's the way it was done in a lot of cases. Uh, in other in other cases, as far as four and five, what happened is that uh, David Kahn was working as a night receptionist at uh, a, a recording studio and was told that, uh, hey, you know, during the midnight to 8 a.m. shift, if one of our studios is empty, you're welcome to use it for free. And so he taught himself or or was, you know, took lessons from uh, some of the other producers and engineers there and learned how to be a record producer on on the fly in, in real time. And uh, so that's that's how he got started. The the interesting thing about him and, you know, and and with the benefit of, uh, you know, retrospective kind of looking back on things, some of the artists appreciated this more than others. But one thing he did was basically kind of a boot camp for bands. The idea would be that, okay, if we're going to go in and record an album, what we're going to do before that is I'm going to rehearse the living daylights out of you for a week or two weeks so you can play those songs backwards, forwards. Uh, And then and only then we'll go in the studio. And so a lot of those records were cut really, really quickly. You know, if you if you look at the quote unquote history of any one of the recordings, uh, it might seem like it went on for several weeks because a lot of that was what we'd call pre-production, just rehearsing. But then one, you know, when the, the, the tape started rolling, those bands mostly played live in the studio. And then it was just down to uh, Khan making sure that he was getting a good sound and uh, a good mix. And let's go on ahead and hear the single that's in some ways kind of the high watermark of 415 Records. This is Romeo Void's Never Say Never. Romeo Void's debut single, Never Say Never. And we'll come back and talk about Romeo Void more, but that's just a perfect illustration of kind of the the teamwork and and what 415 Records was at their best. Uh, That was a song that made it onto numerous soundtracks, got uh, movie soundtracks, got college radio play all across the country and really made an impact. And, and also one other thing we didn't really introduce is tell us about college radio. What was that? Cause this isn't something we hear about when we talk about, you know, fifties R and B or nineties hip hop. This is a very much an eighties, late seventies, eighties phenomenon. What's the story with college radio? College radio came, came about uh, in a, in a significant way during that period. It was, uh, a not was non-commercial radio, but it had uh, you know college students doing the uh, the the programming, the production, and the uh, the DJing, and significantly the song selection. Uh, whereas uh, the 70s, especially late 70s, saw the rise of tightly formatted, uh, some might say uh, cynically minded. Uh, programming of what got played, a lot of it uh, coming out of the, uh, the concepts put forward by a guy named Lee Abrams. Uh, the alternative to that was college radio that uh, didn't you know didn't have to program based on what was going to sell help sell ad space between the songs. And so uh, it was you know from an artistic standpoint, you might say a, a lot sort of uh, more pure. Uh, Howie and Chris really understood that independent record stores and college radio were their market. That was, those were the people, they they were the people that could put them in touch with the kind of listeners who wanted to know about this music, who were interested in it. And 
the the major labels, on the other hand, couldn't really be bothered because they didn't, at least initially, because you know to them college radio wasn't even you know it, it, it didn't matter, and so it was kind of a really really fertile ground, and Howie, with his um, relationship marketing kind of approach, uh, had you know developed. Uh, friendships and working relationships with a lot of these uh, college radio programmers and being a radio guy by that point himself helped immensely. Yeah. How I knew exactly what he wanted to get from a record company, which was primarily the single and an explanation of who, what, where, and why. And um, he did that himself. The story you relate in the book of how he, sitting down to send out records to radio stations and writing the address on the envelope. And of course, everybody's going to remember there's no email back then. You had to do this physically with pen and paper and how we knew all the addresses off the top of his head. I was just astounded by that. Um, you know, incredible. This guy really knew his market and, and you tell stories. I think it was somebody's daughter was ill, maybe broke their leg and you know, how he makes a little note in his Rolodex to remember. And the next time he talks to the DJ, the first thing he asks is how's your kid. And yeah, classic example of, of relationship marketing. And the other thing you need to explain is the context of commercial radio. Not only are they focus grouped to death by Lee, Abrams, to death is probably an exaggeration, but they're focus grouped by Lee Abrams. Who develops his true science? I mean, it really did work. He really knew what people wanted to hear. It would keep people from changing the dial. Turns out it was a lot of Stairway to Heaven and Freebird and, <laughs> you know, and, and Boston. Fleetwood uh, Mac, yes. Yeah, and whatnot. And it, and it created this weird thing where radio started to be out of time because rather than playing all the latest and greatest new stuff, they were playing these proven uh, hits. And then, you know, there's an attempt by the record labels to push punk in 77, but very quickly that implodes because radio just will not touch the stuff. Uh, you know, the sex pistols going to radio stations and vomiting all over everybody didn't help anything. Um, yeah, I think the sex pistols also beat up a whole mob of, of 49ers fans outside of a, a, a San Francisco radio station. So DJs did not want that in their, in their, in their studio. And so, but there's another thing that independent programmers which you know we had the payola trials in the 50s with alan freed going down in flames and dick clark somehow getting off but it became illegal to bribe a dj to play records which it had never been before and almost no other industry is it illegal to bribe your customers or potential customers but by the 80s there's this sort of weird workaround called independent promoters and basically it was also a pay-to-play system is that a fair assessment yeah, I suppose it is. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not, as far as 415, they they were to some degree kind of outside of that because they were Oh, yeah, doing, they didn't have the cash. Yeah, yeah right. They, they didn't have the money to uh, because of the, there are actually a couple stories in the book where um, you know we're, we're jumping ahead here. But once uh, 415 became part of the Columbia CBS monolith, um, when Howie went to some of the near the top people and said, you know, why can't my artists get, um, you know, get more support? And and the, the he was told, and I, I can't remember the exact quote, but basically it's like, if you want us to do any more, you're going to have to pay me. And this was somebody at Columbia CBS. So it's <laughs> like, you're going to have to bribe me. And, uh, you know, how he, one, was indignant, and two, didn't have the cash to do it anyway. So, um, you know, it, it was kind of a, a serious uh, wake-up call that, hey, this is the way the machine works. Yeah, and, and, and I did kind of get ahead of myself there, but I just wanted to introduce that sort of ceiling that it put on the commercial possibilities for 415. And one of the reasons that they looked at going to a major label, and, and you kind of had a spoiler there telling us what happened when they did get there. But let's go back and talk about... Uh, 415's initial model was basically churning out singles. They put out a lot of singles by a lot of different artists. They did a, a, a really excellent compilation album um, that collected a lot of those. And let's just talk about some of the artists. Like, Tell us about Pearl Harbor and the explosions and, and why a lot of people expected a lot of them and what happened. Pearl Harbor and the explosions were remarkable they um listening to that music now it has all of the elements that you know it's the kind of thing where you could play some of those songs for someone who didn't know better 
with a straight face, tell them, yeah, this, this was a big hit in 79. And they'd go, okay. Uh, because it sounds like hits, but, uh, they, you know, they didn't break through to the big time. Uh, Pearl was uh, a former tubes dancer and uh, a, a singer. And the, and the tubes were sort of an art rock a major label 70s group that were somewhere between sort of Frank Zappa and punk at the time, maybe as a way to describe it. They got yes. uh, their album cover was on WKRP in Cincinnati, the TV show, to tell you how big they got for a very yeah. weird band. <laughs> but go ahead. Very weird band. A favorite of mine as, as it happens. Um, but uh, the, the band itself that was uh, backing Pearl up was made of some really, really hot shot musicians who could certainly play the punk stuff, but who also had jazz inclinations. Um, and so it was kind of a, a, a strange hybrid of a lot of different musical elements. Uh, but they they released a, a two-sided single, basically a, a, two, a double A side, you might call it. Um, and uh, that was so successful that the band was immediately or almost immediately signed by Warner Brothers. And it, it's important to point out that, that certainly in those days, part of what Howie and Chris had in mind was, you know, give these bands a hand up with the idea that it will lead them to, big, to bigger things. So Howie and Chris weren't upset when uh, when Pearl Harbor and the Explosions got a deal with Warners, they were like, "Great, these are our friends. You know, we've been able to help them. We've been able to help them, and uh, this will take them to the next level." They were, however, pretty upset when Warners came back to them and said, "Hey, you know, now that uh, Pearl Harbor and the Explosions are a Warners Act, you know that that uh, room full of uh, 45s you've got, you can't sell them anymore." And um, Howie told them to go to straight to hell and kept selling them. <laughs> and good on Howie. And, you know, Pearl Harbor never, never did much on, on Warner Brothers. And we'll talk about some of the difficulties of that transition from an indie, successful MD band to a difficult, uh, you know, how hard it was to make it as a major label band after this sponsor break. And the thing to keep in mind about this era, I'd say anywhere past the birth once freeform fm radio dies and once the major labels had heavily gotten into the rock business in the late 60s the old style of sort of organic regional growth that would occasionally lead into a hit single was dead and and now bands kind of had to not not be manufactured but their success had to be manufactured it became all important to get on tours opening for arena bands so you could introduce yourself, uh, you know, to Peoria and Des Moines and all these wonderful places in the U.S. And also to thread the needle and get your stuff on the radio. So a lot of bands were called. A lot of bands were signed to major labels. And the winnowing was merciless. It was very, very hard to break through. Only the very select, luckiest, best uh, and most hardworking bands were able to thread that needle. And Pearl Harbor and the Explosion is one of many who who fell apart in there. Another band that's really interesting uh, on 415 was SVT. And I think the thing that's most surprising about them is that their bass player was Jack Cassidy of Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna. This guy was a first-rank rock star in the 60s. How did he come to be in a band that's on this punk new wave indie label in the late 70s? It's a curious story, really. Um, by the, the mid-70s, uh, Jack and Yorma, his uh, lifelong best friend and uh, musical partner from the, when they were young, young kids, and uh, continuing to this day, uh, they were they were doing the hot tuna thing, and they had decided, okay, we've been doing all this for a long time. Uh, let's let's take a hiatus. Uh, the understanding wasn't that we're, they were going to break up or stop working together, but it was like let's take a break, go off and do other things for a bit. And um, at that point, Jack wanted to just play some straight ahead rock and roll. He was put in touch with uh, a singer and songwriter of immense talent, a guy named Brian Marnell. And so they put a band together that played, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, put labels on it. And it's one thing that's pretty much consistent to almost every artist I've ever interviewed is that they really don't like it when you label their music. But having said that, uh, SVT was 
sort of a little bit of power pop, a little bit of punk, and a little bit of sort of mainstream, I hate to use the word classic rock, but, um, you know, tuneful stuff that had a, a really, really strong oomph to it, uh, in, thanks in large part to the monster bass player that they had. So that was SVT, and uh, they they re- repeatedly, when I would ask people in the research for the book, you know, who's the band you think that was involved with SVT who should have been huge and really, really You mean 415 Records? I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, 415 Records. Yeah, the um, uh, SVT was the answer. Uh, everybody said that, you know, or nearly everyone said SVT was the band that really should have hit it out of the park commercially and made that jump to the big time, uh, but they didn't. Yeah, and, and you know, things conspire. It's very hard to become a successful rock band as it, as it happens, and even people with all the talent and all the work ethic and even the experience and connections don't always make it. And the next sort of band from the this indie era of 415 I want to cover is Rocky Erickson and the Aliens. Rocky, of course, is a legend in Texas uh, for the 13th Floor Elevators, which was the first psychedelic rock band in the world, massively successful in Texas as a live attraction, uh, had a, a hit single, only went to like 65 in the charts, but was like one or two in many regional markets, including San Francisco. And the elevator spent, I think, seven, eight months in San Francisco in 66, 67, playing live right there with the Grateful Dead and Quicksilver Messenger Service and Moby Grape and all the others. But Rocky had some rough patches. He was literally harassed and persecuted by Texas law enforcement, ended up doing time in a hospital for the criminally insane and i'm not talking about like a country club getaway i'm talking this is where they put you if you ate your little sister kind of place rusk mental hospital one of the scariest uh penal facilities in texas which is one of the scariest uh penal colony type states in the world so poor rocky got arrested for a joint and you know gets electroshock thorazine put in with you know, literally people who eat their families. Um, he gets out. He's a changed man. He's got a new band, Rock Erickson, the Aliens. How did 415 get what's legitimately a seriously good record out of Rocky at this point? Yeah, I would agree with with uh, your, your assessment of that. In fact, uh, as a, a pretty serious Rocky fan myself, I think the evil one is the is the pinnacle of his career. I think it's the best thing he ever did. Um, it, in, in some ways, it's a similar story, similar story to what we were talking about earlier with the bands like the nuns, that there was a finished album and it was brought to 415 uh, for release. The, uh, the album had been made and we can talk more about how the album was made because it's very, very unusual story. But um the album was was finished and uh, a number of tracks were put together and released on uh, CBS UK. And the, uh, the, the gentleman who was involved in working that deal uh, kept a clause in the contract that allowed him to pursue a separate deal in the United States. When he did that, he found that unsurprisingly, none of the major labels were interested. It was just too weird for them. And so he eventually came to Howie and Chris and said, would, would you like to release it? And they said, yeah, but we don't want to release the exact same thing that's already come out in the UK. So they went back to the uh, source tapes and found some more songs that were really good, possibly even better, and released a, a, a version of that album uh, in the US on 415. So to to get all of the music from uh, the the British version and the American version, you'd have to buy one of the uh, latter-day reissues, the best of which came out a few years ago on Light in the Attic. It's a double, it's a, well, it's a two LP set, but uh, side four is, is, uh, is blank. And and it's a great stuff. And I wish we had time to go into the story of the making of that album because it's fascinating. You tell it really well in the book. But I got to get on to the Columbia era because this is when sure. Howie bites the apple, as it were. He's been really successful for an independent label. And, and keep in mind, like you said, the independent labels that built rock and roll had all either been absorbed into the major labels like Electra and Atlantic uh, and so on, or they had gone out of business. And 
there's that now there's this new generation of indie labels that are just babies and and no incubator. They're thrown to the wolves, you know. And and Howie's doing really well, like they say, you know, cutting these albums for five hundred to five thousand dollars and making sometimes as much as fifty thousand dollars on the comeback. So this gets the attention of the major labels, and the major labels also recognize that even though punk didn't initially make it in America commercially. Many bands like the Knack and the Cars uh, had made it come in with that new wave rebranding. And that 415 was really in a sweet spot of identifying talented bands that kind of straddled that line. And they approach Howie. And Howie's initially like, tell us about Howie's meeting with Joe Smith at Electra. And Joe Smith's one of the legendary good guys of, of the record business in the 60s and 70s. He signed the Grateful Dead. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, just took a lot of chances. Good guy, put out a lot of good records. Howie meets him, loves him, but Joe insists that he meet the other people at Electra Records. What happened when Howie met with the other execs at Electra? Well, Joe really does uh, come off in, in, in all my interviews as as a really good guy, uh, and, and Howie knew that about him. And uh, so, so many uh, of the majors had approached uh, 415, and once he took a meeting with Joe, he was pretty much ready to, to how he was ready to just say yes to Electra. But Joe sort of, you know, foreshadowing said, no, you, you need to meet these other guys. And how he found out essentially the reason that he needed to, that Joe wanted him to meet the other guys was one. Uh, Joe was pretty sure that Howie would not like them at all. And and two, Joe was leaving. He was getting ready to retire. So Howie met with these guys and uh, it was just there. It was like oil and water. They just there were, you know, the the the, the sort of the cynicism and the, the rampant drug use uh, and all the kind of stuff like that. Uh, he just knew, oh, this this would be a really, really terrible uh, relationship if we, we got there. And so he he passed on Electra. Yeah, and you and you leave out the story you tell in the book of the exec handing Howie a rolled up hundred dollar bill uh, and showing him some lines of coke, which Howie had the straight edge way before Ian Mackay was a thing, and wanted right. no part of that. And for anybody who knows the backstory of Electra, which was part of the Warner Brothers, you know Warner uh, Atlantic Electra Alliance that had been you know, merged in the early 70s. This was an immensely successful record company that had a great reputation for being artist-friendly, for taking chances, for putting out wildly uncommercial artists, but also for nurturing artists who seemed wildly uncommercial to the point that they became superstars in some instances. And Elector's about to go on to sign Metallica and take them from wildly unlikely underground band to immense success. They're trying to sign the Bad Brains around this time and fail, uh, through no fault of their own. So it's kind of a missed opportunity that Howie didn't work it out with Electra. But when you hear these stories, you understand why. And yeah. now I want to I play one more song snippet, and then we'll get into the story of this band. And this is going to be unusual. I'm going to play two song snippets in short order. And this is the first of the two songs I'm going to play. This is the Red Rockers' Guns of Revolution. And so I'm playing a shorter snippet of that than I usually do because I want to play another snippet of the next Red Rockers. That was the the one of the tracks, the opening track, I think, on their first album, Condition Red. And this is the Red Rockers' China, which was the first single off their first major label album done as a 415 with Columbia Record. This is the Red Rockers' China. the red rockers china and the note the the differences should be stark the first song sounds like a band that's really right on the heels of the clash and stiff little fingers not hardcore punk but punk and the second song china sounds like icicle works or echo and the bunny man or any number of of sort of chimey u2 influenced um bands that were popular and i, I chose that to show you that kind of the difference between the production ethos of indie labels and major labels in this period. Tell us about the Red Rockers and 
how they were impacted by 415 moving to Columbia and kind of dived in full, you know, went for it, were completely complicit in this process of watering down their own sound. Well, Red Rockers were uh, early in their career were, were often referred to as the American Clash. They uh, were a staunchly left wing band with that kind of hard punk edge. They are one of the few bands that involved with 415 that had no connection, prior connection to San Francisco. But um, once once they were on the label and after they released Condition Red, uh, the the success of Romeo Void's Never Say Never led to the uh, the, the Columbia CBS deal, and so suddenly Red Rockers found themselves uh, on a major label. Or you know, or on affiliate of a major label, and so the working with David Kahn, the uh, the decision was made to change their sound uh, in in a direction that would be uh, more commercially palatable. And uh, you're right. I mean, the, the, the China, as as great a, a tune as it is, all but screams MTV. It really, really has that particular vibe and. Um, to anyone who had fallen in love with Condition Red, they'd be forgiven for not recognizing that it was even the same band. Yeah, there was a massive disappointment in my house when my big brother brought home that record. <laughs> it was, <laughs> and and it it wasn't an isolated incident. I mean, there were many bands around this time. Like the Dream Syndicate was on Slash Records, had a great first album, uh, went major label. Second album was a big disappointment when they brought it home. The Gun Club. Great first album on Slash, produced their second album with Chris Stein. A lot of people still love that Chris second album, Gun Club album. But when that when it hit the needle at my house, faces just went sad. And, and the Violent Femmes, who even though they recorded the first album and the second album at the same time, they put all their upbeat songs on the first album and all the downbeat songs on the second album. <laughs> and you know, and so there's the Pogues did it. I mean, just over and over again, bands would have this sort of exciting. Uh, out of the box sound and then go major label and the gated reverb is everywhere. You know, the, the, the Lynn drum snare sound is, is everywhere. The gated reverb snare sound is everywhere. And, you know, it was just a heartbreaker for a fan. And I liked icicle works and you two well enough at the time, but you know, it was just so screamingly obvious that the red rockers were not about this. And, you know, it's kind of a minor hit, but, um, they also learn a lot of lessons in this process. Like what happened when Annie Leibovitz was hired to do their album cover? Tell us about that, their whole album cover experience, <laughs> their first and second, their second and third albums. Right. Because they, they actually have two album cover stories, but uh, the, for Annie Leibovitz, uh, the, you know, extremely well-known uh, photographer uh, was hired to do a photo shoot for their, their second album uh, and uh, good as gold. And as the story was told to me, when uh, she showed up, there, there was another band there. Uh, no one seems to remember exactly who the other band were, was, but um, she decided to basically do kind of a two for one and use one couch and one backdrop and shoot one band and say, OK, now you guys get up out of the way. Hey, you other bands sit down, um, you know, kind of a production line thing. And uh, they were not none too happy about that although um i they were less infinitely less happy with uh, the uh, the the photo session for their their third album yeah and tell us about that and also the money of this i mean it's, they spent what fifty thousand dollars on the what's cover and definitely didn't result in any additional album sales i mean if you look at the album cover it's not even notable um yeah. anyway the second album cover though the second major label album cover is notable because it's notably bad tell us about that <laughs> one <laughs> yes at the time it came out i was working in um in the warehouse of a, a record store chain in atlanta and i remember when uh, the boxes came in and we opened we opened up and saw uh, the album cover of of uh, the 
I'm sorry, I'm blanking out. On schizophrenic the, circus. Schizophrenic circus. Yes, forgive me. I, when I opened up the box, when we opened up the box and saw the cover of Schizophrenic Circus, uh, I don't remember if it was my, me or one of my coworkers who just looked at it and said, "Oh, those poor bastards." Um, the <laughs> the it's 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 risible. It's ridiculous. Um, friend of the band Jello Biafra probably uh, summed it up best when he said they look like sad clowns on the beach in a Fellini movie. Um, it's it's a completely ridiculous cover, uh, and the 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 band says that you know it was their understanding that that was going to be a small element, uh, sort of an inset, if you will, on the cover of uh, with them dressed in normal clothes you can see the back cover of the album has you know and to, to quote from um this is spinal tap you should have seen the cover they wanted to use well the, the back cover has the, the the cover that they wanted which was that they're on the beach but they're dressed in more conventional sort of uh, indie new wave rock garb but uh the the the, cl- the clownish cover that uh, is the front one is an embarrassment to all concerned one of the members told me that, it, uh, you know, half in jest that uh, at one point he tried to go around the country and buy up every single copy so that he could uh, destroy it. He was not <laughs> succe- he was not successful in that endeavor. Yeah. And it's just, you know, reading the stories, so we don't have time to go in depth on what happened to Romeo Void. But I do want to mention that, you know, incredibly talented singer, uh, their first song, Never Say Never, I'd say is one of the sort of you know, key songs of the era for new wave songs in the early eighties. That's on multiple movie soundtracks. It was a, it was a minor uh, pop hit, um, big college radio track, you know, but Romeo Void, because the singer was a female and she was heavy, the, mm-hmm. the major, the record label didn't know how to deal with her. They wouldn't put full body shots of her in any of the f- press kit photos. You know, they'd stick her face surrounded by the rest of the band. So you couldn't see her. And, um, struggled again with production and jumping from producer to producer and another band that 415 sunk a lot of hope and aspiration into is wire train tell us a little bit about wire train why they were why people were so excited about them uh, their first record in a chamber pretty successful and well respected but what happened to wire train down the road and why why did the 415 columbia team team not ever why was it less than the sum of the parts instead of more than the sum of the parts you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, it, everyone has their own idea about why something did or didn't work. Um, the the Wire Train started out uh, as a band called the Renegades, and they were doing a, a kind of I, you know it's hard really to describe their sound. It's 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 fairly straightforward, kind of a a it, it certainly it wasn't cowpunk, but it had a little bit of some of the elements of the the kind of the Paisley Underground thing that was would eventually happen, and uh, you know chiming rock, but with kind of a punk energy and intelligent lyrics. By the time of their second album, which was recorded in Vienna, Austria, they uh, got together with uh, producer Peter Maunu, and went in a, a, a different and I would argue a, a, a more adventurous direction. Uh, incorporating uh, inspiration from artists like uh, Robert Fripp and Brian Eno, uh, some sonic textures that, you know, even today you listen to them and, and you might say to yourself, what am I hearing? Is that a guitar? Is that some sort of processor effect? Is it a keyboard? Is it a, what is it? Um, so their second album, Between the Two Words, is is really a remarkable record. Uh, it, was, it was certainly at the time it was, a big part of the soundtrack of my college years. Uh, While that album was being made, the band was going through a very, very difficult period uh, between uh, Kevin Hunter, who was uh, ostensibly the leader and primary songwriter, and Kurt Hare, the uh, second guitarist, who was also a singer and songwriter of some note. And uh, that tension uh, helped create what I, for me is their best album, but it also uh, kind of split the band. And by the time the record came out, Kurt was out of the group. And that will, you know, really 
it's like blowing a tire in, in a Formula One race. It's very hard to replace your number two guy. And a lot of number one guys in bands find that out to their regret after they've succeeded in winning their internal battles and pushing out their rival. And and yeah, it's 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 fascinating to read these case studies and each each of these bands, um, you know, Romeo Void and, and Wire Train in particular, they were seen as as Grade A prospects. People expected a lot. People really loved their first, uh, their early stuff, and and uh, you know some people dug the second Wire Train album. I, that was another one that hit like a brick on on my turntable when my older brother oh. brought that home. Where, just because it was different, we just didn't know what to make of it. I think over time he might have come to like it a bit more, but by that time he'd gone off to college and taken the record with him, and I never oh. ever brought it back. So it was interesting to go back for me and, and hear the later Wire Train, but. I was just so quick to write off a band as soon as, you know, if they had a first record that I liked and then the second album sounded overproduced, I just gave up on them because it seemed like they'd been eaten by the machine. And that's kind of what happened to 415 Records. Wrap it up by telling us, how did this partnership between 415 and Columbia dissolve? How he saw that, um, you know, he felt like he had done what he wanted to do with the label and really wanted to move on. Um, and so he went on and, and got a, a, a much bigger job with uh, Warner's sire. Um, what happened is that the, 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 the arrangement that 415 had with Columbia CBS had uh, what's known as a, a key man clause in it. And what it meant is that once Howie was gone, uh, Columbia didn't have to do anything more with four and five if they didn't want to. They also had the right to dictate if Howie said, okay, I want to sell four one five to this person. They could either give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And if they gave it a thumbs down, he couldn't do it. So in the end for somewhere fairly close to zero dollars, uh, he sold it to, uh, Sandy Perlman. And with that, the label pretty much ceased to exist. Uh, Sandy signed a couple bands and released records by them, but he didn't even call the label 415 at that point. He called it Popular Metaphysics. And I think there were four albums total, and all four of them sank pretty well without a trace. And that was, poof, that was the end. Uh, to be fair, though, at the time that Howie sold the label, Wiretrain had broken up effectively, although they got back together. Translator had broken up. Romeo Void had broken up. Until December had broken up. Red Rockers had bro been broken up. So there were no artists left on the label at that point. Yeah, it, it it just kind of all all fell apart, and it's fascinating. And Howie Klein is going to go on to uh, a pretty storied career at Warner Brothers and Sire. Uh, he definitely comes up in the episode I did on Ice T's um, uh, cop killer controversies band Body Count was on Sire, and and Howie really tried to help Ice T get that record out there. But then he's also kind of the mastermind behind Alanis Morissette's uh, uh, album, and and I'm hoping to do an episode about that at some point. But my guest today has been Bill Cop. The book is Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records and the Rise of New Wave. So thanks so much for being on the show and tell us about a period that has been kind of undersung and I think quite important. So it's been a treat, Bill. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Joel Selvin to discuss his book, Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and the Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.